Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, everybody. Mike, Mark, and Barry with you. And Mark, our guest on this episode really does fascinate me because of all he's experienced and endured under a very public microscope. Interesting enough that uh, Tony Gwynn Jr. was in the locker room with us and had the ability to watch the game through his dad's eyes. Then he got the opportunity that he was working hard for, and he continues to do that in his craft, in his broadcasting career. I love Tony Gwynn Jr., and he was raised the right way. Well, we call our show Major League Beginning, so let's go ahead and hit rewind. I want to take you back to to 2003. You were second-round pick of the Milwaukee Brewers. You shoot through the minors, and in July of 2006, you get word that you're headed to the major leagues. What was yeah. that moment like, and how'd you find out? Well, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, and I were just starting to get up <clears throat> in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, it was my first year at the AAA level, and uh, my phone rings at about, it was like around 7 o'clock, 7 a.m., and of course, uh, I, missed, <laughs> I missed the first phone call. Um, so when I woke up about 45 minutes later, um, I see that I have a, a missed phone call from, from Frank Kremlitz, our, our manager uh, at the time in Nashville. And so I call him back, kind of having an understanding of, of what had been transpiring. Brady Clark, who was the center fielder at the time, was struggling a little bit. They were looking for uh, to a, a guy who could get on base and and maybe affect some things while he's on, while on the base pass. And I was having a good season. So I kind of knew what was coming up, what was uh, around the corner, but you know, you never know. So I call him back and he doesn't answer. So now I'm kind of in a panic, you know, it's like, all right, I was 45 minutes late to getting back to his, his phone call. Now I call him back. He's not answering. Eventually he would pick up and, and call me back. And uh, at that point he kind of, he let me know I was on my way to Arizona to meet the team, um, and I was going to get my first opportunity at the big league level. T, when you uh, get that phone call, this is Mark Sweeney, by the way, if you get that phone call and then you're calling back and you don't get a response, did you feel like it was almost like, hey, someone's punking me here? I mean, was it one of those things, or did you, you really have a good feeling that this was going to be your opportunity? I had a good feeling because I knew my teammates wouldn't be up that early to set up a prank that early. They just weren't <laughs> that savvy. So I was, I, believe me, those thoughts went through my head and I was eliminating those before I would let myself believe that this might be my chance to go to the big league level. Um, so I knew it wasn't a prank. Um, and so when he called me back and, and, and Frank called me back and let me know, immediately the first person I thought of was, was my pops. But I also knew at 7.45 or 8.30 at this point, uh, Nashville time, there was no chance he was up back in San Diego at, at 6.30, 6.45. But I knew my mom would be up. So I rang the phone. She picked up. And um, I began to tell her, hey, I, I'm going to big leagues. I'm going to Arizona. And my mom is, is a pretty even-killed person. She doesn't get, like, too excited. So she didn't really give me the the type of – joy I thought she might give me or that I thought my at least knew my dad would give me if he was on the phone so 
I, you know, I kept it together. I called back in like another hour and a half just so I could tell my dad. And uh, he was excited. Yeah, you guys, Mark, you know my pops really well. He, he hates flying. So he was already <laughs> talking about, I'm driving down there as soon as, you know, I get word that you, you're in town. Like, as soon as you get to Arizona, call me, I'm driving down. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was the day. I, I woke my woke my wife up and said, hey, uh, I got to start packing. I got to go to Arizona, going to Big League. So, obviously, she's excited. My family's excited. And so the, the day of travel began from that point. When you had that conversation with your dad uh, internally, how'd that make you feel? Because it's always been about... Tony Gwynn senior. And now this is your moment where it's all about junior and that had to feel good for you. It did. It it, it was a weird, honestly, it was a weird feeling because as you said, everything prior to that point was either comparison to my father or it was about my father. So for this particular moment to be about me, it was it was awesome, but it was a, it was a different feeling. It was something I had really never felt before because he made it a point to put the emphasis on me. It, no, there was nothing mentioned about him at all in that conversation. He made it a point to make it strictly about me, and uh, I, he was clearly he was clearly, he was clearly pumped up about it. Hey Tony, when you get to the big league clubhouse, I mean, you grew up in them. It, it probably yeah. wasn't at all foreign to you, except. To Mark's point, now it's really about you. Do you remember what it felt like to scan that locker room, see your name up on your own jersey, and know I'm not here to watch Pops. This yeah. time it's for me. What, what was that like? It was awesome. I mean, that, that was the one thing that I was locked in on the most. You know, for however 19, 20 years walking into Qualcomm, I was always walking in as the son of, of Tony Gwynn and it was always his jersey hung up in the pinstripes you know it was always his locker I was sitting in so to walk into the Diamondbacks visiting locker room and to see that 22 hung up with my number and I mean same last name but you know my my jersey hung up there that was the probably the moment I remember most of all was walking in finding my locker uh, and, and realizing this is my uniform that I'm about to put on, you know, hopefully for a long time. Uh, I had a lot of Andre clients over the years and a lot of friends who were coaches, managers, broadcasters, front office people. And I always was aware of Anthony Glenn, little Anthony being around the clubhouse. Did the familiarity with the big league clubhouse and being around big leaguers and being around the atmosphere that, do you think that took any of the sheen off of walking in there the first time as a big leaguer? I don't know if it took the sheen off, but it certainly took the uncertainty that most guys have when they walk into a big league clubhouse. Um, as you guys know, there's a certain way that you have to conduct yourself. And from an early age, uh, I was taught that, you know, walking into the clubhouse. My dad, before I was even ever allowed in the dugout, I had to, he wanted to make sure I understood that for the other 24 guys that were in that locker room, <clears throat> including my dad, it was, it was a job. It wasn't, uh, even though I was nine, 10 years of age and it was all fun and games to me for everybody else, it was their livelihood. And 
I don't think he would have ever allowed me in the clubhouse if I didn't have that understanding um, at an early age. And, and, and I think so when I got to the big league level for myself, um, that sheen was still there because it's still the big league. I still held it at such a, a, a high level. But the uncertainty that most guys walk in with, not knowing, you know, who should they be talking to, who they shouldn't be talking to, where do I fit in and all this? I knew where my place was at that point. So that actually gave me an advantage because I knew I could just go in and keep my head down, go to work, and I would be left alone as long as I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Tony, the fascinating thing is we're talking about 2006. Here we sit 2020. And I think names have a lot to do with how that atmosphere was when you went in the clubhouse. So I'm going to mention a few. Jeff Jenkins, Jeff Cirillo, Damian Miller, the catcher, Rick Helling, who was 35 at the time, Carlos Lee, Brady Clark, as you mentioned. But also you had some young players in there, which I think is a benefit when you're taking on this journey and you're talking about Bill Hall, J.J. Hardy was 23, Corey Hart, 24 years old, Prince Fielder, a year younger than you, right. but also a great influence and a, a huge presence. Who first met you in that locker room and what do you remember about that embrace, whether it was a veteran or it was one of the younger guys? Well, it was, it was my, it was the two guys that I came into one of the guys that came in with the organization. One of the guys who I grew really close and that was Prince Fielder and Ricky week. Um, we had spent, uh, a ball, low a ball together. We had spent a whole year in double a together. And, you know, from that point we kind of broke off and, and, you know, guys were, those two were advancing a little bit faster, but those were the first two guys that I met. Um, but, in that locker room, especially with, with Jenkins, guys like Rick Helling, guys like Brady Clark, um, they were they were super welcome. Um, and it made that, obviously, when you walk into a, a clubhouse and you got your boys in the clubhouse, there's going to be a sense of comfort. But also, being the fact that I had been in locker rooms my whole life, I knew I wanted, I needed to be accepted by the veterans, too. You know, it couldn't just be Prince and Ricky and I, I needed to kind of fit in with everybody. Craig Council was among those guys too. And um, I think by the time I walked in, met Prince and Ricky, it wasn't too much longer before Jenks walked up, before Rick Helling walked up, before Brady Clark walked up. And that especially was important because he was the guy that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm competing with, right? He's, he's the starting center fielder. I have aspirations to be starting center fielder. But Brady was, was super cool about it. And from there, I was able just to go out and play. So the whole league knows who you are for obvious reasons. You bust in, group of kids, as Mark points out, interesting mix of veteran players as well. But this time, you can be yourself because you know dad's not sitting in the corner watching your every move and, and checking on your behavior. So when you and Prince, who I think everybody knows has this wonderful relationship, or Ricky Weeks, who was drafted number one the year you went number two to the Brewers, what was it like when the boys could play? Just hanging out and having fun. What was the difference between having dad in the clubhouse over your shoulder and being your own man? Um, I think initially things probably weren't as serious, right? With my dad around, you know, it was, 
it was always about work. It was about focusing in on the task. Uh, and it was still about that, but it was a lot more, you know, loosey goosey for some 22, 23, 24 year olds. Right. And I enjoyed that. I enjoy, there, there's a picture of Prince Ricky and I in Florida and it's just of us hackling, just laughing our, our souls away. And that was generally how it was when we got together and it didn't matter. And it was contagious. It was, a, it was infectious to anybody, anybody around it. Around it. So, um, it, it, for, for me in particular, um, I look back on those times as, as some of my funnest in the game because, um, yes, it's about work, but you're also developing what I think when we get done playing this game, we all look back on, and that's the relationships you develop while you're, you're in that clubhouse, while you're a part of a team. And uh, I, hold those, I hold those pretty tight. When you get there, uh, obviously your first day, uh, did you play that day or that night? And tell us about your first at bat. My first at bat uh, was against Brandon Webb, who was a Cy Young <laughs> Award winner. And I just remember uh, Dead Yost looking down, like, hey, get yourself ready. Uh, so, you know, I went through my at the time, I didn't really have a routine. I didn't, I just grabbed a bat. I hadn't, you know, in the minor leagues, I hadn't been coming off the bat. So I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing. You know, I followed guys like Cirillo and went down and just kind of followed and watched what they were doing. And I just copied it, basically. So I get up there, and if you remember, Arizona is kind of a long walk to home plate. It's, it's drawn out. I remember the whole time walking up, like, I can't feel my legs. Like, I can't feel... <laughs> the cleats going to like, that's the thing that thing I love most, right. Is you put your cleats on, you walk on that big league field, your cleats sink into the grass. I just couldn't remember not feeling any of that and thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to get to this box. I'm going to carve my little spot out. I'm going to sink my cleats in and it's going to be on. And I did that. And I still couldn't feel my feet. Like I couldn't feel anything from the waist down. I, I had no feel at all. So the whole time through the at bat, you know, I'm locking in on the pitcher, take the pitch. I get out. I'm trying, I'm trying to feel my legs. I just cannot feel them. So we get to, I think it gets to like two, two. And I just, I just say, you know, forget it. I obviously at this point, I'm not going to feel my legs. Let me just go ahead and just try to hit the ball hard. I hit a, I hit a hard one hop ground ball that Connor Jackson made a nice play, got me out. And I just remember feeling, okay, I can, I can do this. I can do this. This was, that was, this is against Brandon Webb. This is against the Cy Young win right here. And I just laced that ball and I got it on the pool side, which at the time wasn't necessarily my strongest suit. So even though I was out, I felt pretty good about that. I was walking back to the dugout feeling like, all right. And by the way, my dad drove all the way up just to see that pitch at his bat and then got his car and drove right back because he had to get back to San Diego State. What was that message that your dad gave you uh, after he had that? He drove back home, but man, that had to be one of those meetings that, again, we talk about something that's special within your heart. What was that conversation like? Unfortunately, I didn't get to see him that day. So um, he showed up. He got there, like, as the game started. So I didn't get a chance to say to him, say anything to him beforehand. He had to get back. He left right after my at-bat uh, in seventh, eighth inning. So I didn't really get to see him after. But we talked on the phone. And I think the first thing he said is, Man, you look good up there. And he says, and then we 
continued the conversation. And I think he said something like, well, now the hard work begins. And I, he said it to me before, but it stuck to me this time was it's easy to get up here. It is harder to stay up here. So at the time, I don't know what that means. It's my first time at the big league. Uh, over time, I would eventually figure out what he was talking about, but, um, that was the moment that I felt like, okay, well, here we go. Let's, let's go to work. See, see what we can do. The message was sent from your dad that it was time to work. And after that, you're constantly thinking as a player, when can I get my first? Your first came off of Brian Wilson, the closer of the Giants. Take us into that at bat. Tell us how you felt. And it was a double, I believe. Yeah. Um, Brian Wilson wasn't Brian Wilson that we became to know at the time. I think he was setting up at the time. So uh, he comes in. I don't know. I don't know anything about him, as many people don't at that point. Um, but I know he's throwing hard. The ball's getting on me well. But again, I, I had at that that 2006 season, I had been swinging really well. I had uh, worked all off season to get my swing in a place where, you know, I could be effective at the big league level. So at that point, I was pretty confident going up there. Velocity was never like a, a big issue for me. Um, and, you know, I get up there and I lace a double. I think we were down two runs at the time and I laced the double to, to, I think to bring us within one, I'm on second base. And, uh, it just happened. I think it was 24, five years to the day. My dad got his first hit, which was a double in San Diego. Uh, so, uh, it was, I didn't know that until after the fact, um, but it was pretty special, obviously to, to do something, um, like that on with that's, connected to my dad and it would be the start of a whole bunch of things that my dad and I have connections with in terms of our careers. Tony, when you come to the big leagues and as we talked about, everybody has an expectation of every big league player, but you come with the world on your back. What's it like to acknowledge all the achievements your father had, except the fact that he was one of baseball's all-time greatest hitters? still be yourself and and be okay with not necessarily being a lifetime 330 hitter, that you yeah. were a different man who just happened to carry the same name. How'd you process all that pressure? You know, honestly, Mike, I don't know that I ever really processed it, processed it at a, at later on in life. I think it just happened because obviously I was carrying the name from the time I was born and I've been playing the game since, I was six, five, six years old. So those expectations were always there. I mean, even I remember in Little League as a nine-year-old having those expectations. And I think what ended up happening was it just became the norm. It it wasn't anything unusual. It was like putting on your shirt, putting on your pants. You just do it. You don't think about it. And it it stayed that way for me. Even through college, as those expectations grow, from, from people surrounding you. Um, it, it's, it just was something that I didn't put too much thought into. Like it, it is what it is. My name, my name is Tony Gwynn. It's the same as my father's people are naturally going to see me playing the game that he played and have those expectations. And, and there's really nothing I could do about it. Um, I recognized as I got older that I wasn't just playing the same game that my father was. My dad happened to be one of the greatest hitters 
to ever play the game. I don't know that that expectation is, is what most kids have who bear the same name as their father, right? I think you can think of maybe Michael Jordan's kids who were coming up after him. That, that hill to climb is so steep and tall that um, if, you're, if you're a realist, you understand that I can sh- I'm going to shoot for that. If I come up short, I think I'll still be in, 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 in pretty good situation here. Hey, Tony, going back to what your dad said about getting there is one thing and staying there is another. Uh, you had your experiences of having to go back and fight your way back up to the big leagues. Were, besides the first call-up, were any of the other recalls uh, memorable to you? Does one stick out above any of the others? Yeah, I'd say in, uh, in 2008 when we actually got into the playoffs. Um, I think that one was different because I had been, I had gotten the opportunity to um, start that season. Uh, Mike Cam had a suspension. So I was able to get 25 games. Three games into that, I, I, I uh, strained my hamstring. So I ended up giving up pretty much, I think, 20, 22 of those 25 games due to the injury. And so having to work my way back up and then getting the opportunity to be on the playoff roster. Now, some things had to happen in order for, for that to take place. But nevertheless, I, I was given that opportunity. I got to perform on, in, in the playoffs, and I got opportunity to play in the playoffs. That one sticks out to me probably uh, the second, second most. Tony, as every player evolves in this game, if you're lucky enough to hang around – outside of guys like your dad who were able to play their entire career with one club, most fellas endure being sent down, they endure releases, being traded, free agency, the whole nine yards. Take us to the moment you were traded to San Diego because oftentimes the message comes through predictable (laughs) channels, but not necessarily in your case. No, it certainly was anything but predictable. Uh, the, the irony of it is that we were flying into Portland, which at the time was, uh, was the Padres AAA team. So we were going into Portland to play them for a four-game series. Little did I know that on that flight, I would be sitting next to a, a, a teammate's wife uh, that was going out to see him, Will Venable. I, I was sitting next to his wife. So I get there the following day. Me and a teammate, Jason Bourgeois, were, were eating breakfast got it up early, which I really, really did during the season, was get up early to get I was pumped up because I enjoyed playing in, in Portland. I was going to get to play against the Padres, which was something that, you know, every time I got an opportunity, I wanted to show out because it was obviously it was a team that my dad played for forever. So um, we're sitting down eating breakfast. My phone rings, and it's I, I see it's from my father. So I, I pick it up, and – He's like, you're sitting down? I'm like, yeah, I'm sitting down. I'm having breakfast right now. What's up? And he was like, all right, well, you've been traded to the Padres. And he just, like, lost it. Like, he, he's <laughs> yelling into the phone. And meanwhile, this is my first time. Like, I don't know how accurate this is. I don't know where he's getting this info. Eventually, he tells me, your Uncle Chris just, just called and let me know. So, so at this point, I, I believe it to be true. But I don't know what the rules and regulations are to being traded, who you can tell if I should even know this right now. I haven't heard it from Don Money, our manager. I haven't heard it from Doug Melvin, our GM, or Gord Ash, our assistant GM. So in my mind, I'm thinking, man, 
if this is true, can I blow it by saying something? Like, let I'm I, I'm like I'm kind of in in panic mode. Like, I don't know if I should know this. I'm not going to say anything. So, uh, within three minutes, Don Money, excuse me, Don Money, um, his 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 phone rings. Who is our manager? So he begins to. He's, you know, he, he's a loud talker. So it's a, it's a breakfast, it's a small area, but he's just blaring loud right now. So I'm trying to pretend like I can't hear him. Like, I don't know what's going on. He hangs up, he calls me over. He goes, Tony, um, you've been traded. And I'm like, really? Like we're, we're two, like, I'm trying to play it off. Like, I don't know anything. Cause I, I don't want this thing to be blown up because of it. Uh, and he goes, you've been traded to Padres, you can pack. They're expecting you uh, at Petco Park tonight for the game. So you got to get out here. So I shake his hand, uh, give some hugs. I'm, I'm excited. I'm like going upstairs. I pack my stuff probably fast as I ever packed in my life. And uh, I hop on, the, on a taxi and get on a plane and I head to San Diego. This is a different beast now at that point. Because now you said it was on when you went to Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah. If it's on it's really in Milwaukee, on. no offense, <laughs> but it's an entirely different beast walking yeah. into Petco Park wearing that last name on your back. Yeah, no, it, it was, it was. It, and I remember flying in that day. Uh, it's probably the, the only time I've ever arrived to a game after it started. So I'm like getting dressed. And it, you know, for Mark, you would notice, uh, Mike, you would notice too, like how getting there, being late is like one of the things that you like fear the most. Mm -hmm. Yet I'm pulling up, the game is literally in the first inning and I'm getting, I'm getting dressed. And I'm, so I walk down the clubhouse and I walk down through the clubhouse into the dugout and very rarely are you meeting your teammates for the first time in the middle of a game. So that was, that was weird in itself introducing myself to Bud Black while he's managing a game. Like it was just all kinds of weird. So um, I'm freshly shaved at this point because I've been in the minor leagues. Brewers had a, a, a rule of no facial hair. So uh, it's probably one of the few pictures that people ever caught of me with, with no facial. Hair. But I end up watching this. We're playing the Giants. Again, Brian Wilson is coming in in the ninth. I get an opportunity to pinch it. I walked. I ended up scoring the game-winning run in the first game. Uh, it was certainly a, a terrific start to to my Padre career. How was the ovation when you had that? It had to be something special. It was sweet. It was sweet. It, it, it gave me goosebumps. Um, but as a as a as a twenty seven year old at this point, you couldn't show it. I, I, I couldn't <laughs> show it. I'm I'm locked in to trying to prove to everybody that. I, I'm not here based on my father's name. That's the first thing you, I'm thinking about when I get traded to Padres is, okay, I'm going to the same organization that my father played in. I grew up in. I want to show people that um, I'm a good player and I, and I belong at this level. Tony, also, I mean, I think all of us that have been around you, uh, fans of the game of baseball, watched your dad. Uh, and all they saw was number 19. You were wearing number 18 at the time. Dive into the, the number game because that was special to you because of what you watched. Special to a lot of us, guys that were yeah. teammates of your dad. Into the number and, and how did that all evolve? Because I know you did wear 19 uh, in, in the Phillies uniform. 
But take yeah. us into that Padre uniform and, and that dialogue. So during that conversation uh, with my father, when he's telling me about being traded, he asked me if I wanted to wear 19. And I said, hell no, I don't want to wear 19. <laughs> the last thing I want to do. He's all right. Well, you know, Kevin, uh, Kevin, Kevin Towers, who was a GM, he's like, he asked me about it. I'm cool with it. If you want it, it's yours. And I was like, ah, nah, I'm good. So when I arrived, I, I picked 18 because I thought it looked good a, on my back, but it wasn't 19. And it, it was it was just something at that point in my life, you're trying to carve out whatever niche you can on your own, um, wearing the number 19. And plus, honestly, I honestly felt like I would be doing my dad a disservice. I mean, he played 19, 20 years in, in San Diego and people have unbelievable lifelong memories of him and that number. Um, I didn't think it was 100% fair to, even if he was okay with it, uh, to put that number on my back. Tony, did you ever get to the point where you felt like you were truly accepted for who you are without the shadow of pop, especially uh, as we're discussing, you know, given your time playing in San Diego? Yeah, that, 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 that 09 year uh, was the first year that I started to feel accepted. Um, I was getting everyday playing time. I was playing well. Um, and, you know, when you start hearing things from people you play against um, and, and they're showing some love about it, that's when you start to feel like, okay, this is, uh, I'm here. I belong. Because it, ultimately, when we walk away from the game, you want to be remembered by your peers uh, a certain way. And really, when, it, when we really boil it down, that's the one thing that I think we all hold dear to our hearts is how, we, how our peers felt about us as A, a player, B, as a teammate. And in that 2009 season, I started to, you know, I started to, to I was looked at differently from that point on for my peers because they could see that at that point, um, getting, you know, 450, 500 bats and playing well, um, you start to get that respect. And, and that was something that I think that we're all chasing. One of the things that I took pride in throughout my career is I had guys who <clears throat> wanted to stay with the same team and were willing to take less money. And I admired your dad greatly as a Padre fan, as a member of the community here. Uh, I admired him and I appreciated him for wanting to stay in San Diego, even though everybody knew there were times he took a little bit less money. There weren't many guys that did that. At one time, I think there were seven guys that had been uh, with the same team for 10 or more years in the big leagues, one of whom was your dad. And I know that the agent plays a part in that. And I know that John Boggs, who's a, a friend of mine and a friendly competitor, had a lot to do with fulfilling your dad's wishes of keeping him in San Diego. When it came time for you to select an agent, was Boggsy a slam dunk, or did you think about branching out and finding somebody different? And the second part of that is, what has he meant to you both in your playing career and in your new broadcasting portion of your life now? How has Boggsy influenced you? Boggsy has been, Boggsy's one of the few people that I know that has been there literally since day one. Like from the time I was born until now, Boggsy has always been um, a fixture in my life one way or the other. Now, initially, 
I think more probably more so due to me wanting to branch out on my own. I did. I went a different route, you know, um, and I was very satisfied from in terms of what I was getting from my agent. But even when that was the case, I could always pick up the phone and call John and ask him really anything. You know, it it was much more of a of a friendship than it was uh, initially because he wasn't my agent. Um, I didn't start working with John until I got to the end of my career. Um, John was always, even when I wasn't his client, was always there for me. So uh, he plays a he plays a, he plays an extremely important part of it now. But even then, like when I had uh, when I was being represented by someone else. Um, I knew I could pick up the phone if there was any questions I had. Um, there was, and it didn't necessarily have to do with baseball. Uh, he was just one of those type of people that I knew I could rely on regardless of uh, whether I was a client of his or not. Tony, so many moments that your dad had, but uh, when we were on the same team in 1998, and you understand this, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it. 1998, we go to the World Series against the Yankees. It's game one. All family and friends are huddled into a certain section at Yankee Stadium. And I want to take you into the scenario that was really unbelievable for me individually because I was on a magic carpet ride as a teammate, bench player hanging out. Game one, I run in in the middle of the game to get a coffee. And I'm coming back out to the dugout as fast as I can because I don't want to miss a moment. And your dad squares me up as he's going into the locker room. And it's against David Wells, a game one, who is a San Diego resident. But he looked at me, and I know it wasn't a question because he didn't have to ask a question, but he said, I think he's going to try to sneak a fastball by me next at bat, and I'm going to turn on it. And it sounded like a question. So my awkward reaction was, you should sit on it. And I, I walked back, and I was so nervous. I think I was sweating like I was playing the game. So your dad walks into the locker room. The scenario is and how it plays out, Kilvio Veras dumps one into center field with, with, with uh, two outs. Up comes your dad. He picks over to Kilvio one time. Then he does a slide step and throws a fastball to your dad. And at that moment, I'll never, ever forget it because he's had plenty of moments. But he's on the grandest stage in New York. He hits yeah. this mammoth home run to right field off the top facade in the, in the upper deck. And he's going around the bases, followed up with a Greg Vaughn home run, back-to-back home runs. But what I'd love to ask you is you're sitting in the stands. What was your reaction and how did you feel? How'd that make you feel? Because we all know as fans and, te- and uh, former teammates what we felt. I was talking so much trash in the stands <laughs> at that point. I had already, this is a quick little backstory. My mom didn't play when it came to watching the game. We were there to watch the game, and that's what we were supposed to do. No getting up and back and forth, no going to play. I was there to watch the game. She couldn't stand when I responded to people who were around, you know, talking to the players. So we get there and we're, you know, we're, all the whole families are, are in one section and they got us surrounded by just Yankee crazies all around us. And 
I just remember sitting down and through like the first, I mean, six hours. I mean, you're hearing all kinds of, of things thrown, hurled at my dad. And I just remember looking at her, like, kind of give her, can I please say something? Can I please stand up? Because he's just getting pummeled right now. And he couldn't hear any of it, I'm sure, but it, I could hear it, which was bothering me. And this was the one time she's ever let me just be me. I, I was 16 at the time. So, um, and it was interesting because I believe the siege was being filmed at that time. So Bruce Willis and Denzel Washington are maybe six rows behind me. Uh, so, you know, that whole at bat with David was set up in the first at bat. Mm -hmm. Here we gets on, my dad puts the hit and run on and David threw just a, a, a breaking ball that really had no business being hit. And my dad flipped it in the left field. And as he's running the first base, he can hear David screaming, cursing at him as he's going down the first base. So all of that sets up in his mind, oh, David's pissed off. He's going to try. He's going to try to bust me in, break my bat, make me look bad. However, it goes down in his head. So my dad hits that home run. And by the way, he had already singled that first at bat. So at this point, I was getting the green light for my mom. So I'm letting, I'm letting these fans around me have it. I remember at one point kind of peeking back because, you know, Denzel and Bruce both had their Yankee hats on. And I remember not necessarily speaking to them, but speaking in their direction. And they just kind of smirked. So when he comes up and he hits the two-run shot, oh, oh, my gosh. I mean, I had just heard something along the lines of mixing a salad bar tone. So I immediately turned to that guy and was like, mixing that salad bar and just going off, right? I never even seen my dad hit a ball that far in my life. I mean, that ball hit up to third, third deck there. That's a big shot. So uh, just it's safe to say that I was giving the Yankee fans the business, at least for the first six, seven. Eight. So you don't think it was me and my influence of what I, I said, you should do that. You don't think that's an influence, Clear, right? Clearly <laughs> he, he did sit on it. So I think he had to have some influence in there. That pitch from David was like chest high. That's a pitch my dad normally wouldn't even swing at, but. As you said, he, he mentioned to you, hey, I think he's going to try to bust me. And it probably didn't matter where that pitch was. He was going to get to it and hit it out regardless. Hey, Tony, you know what? You've gone through a story of life that most of us can only truly read about. And so with that in mind, you've probably learned more about this game and life than most of us as well. With that said, what, what do you think is the greatest lesson the game taught you? that your father couldn't? Wow. Um, I think that failure isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, you learn, especially in the game of baseball, you learn as a hitter, you're, if you're good, you're failing 70% of the time. So learning how to deal with failure um, is something I don't know that any parent can teach their son or daughter um it's something that you learn and in the game of baseball where you're failing so much you you have to adapt or or the game isn't fun to you at, at anymore and i think that's probably the thing i i've taken away from the game is um not to necessarily look at failure as a as a negative thing it, it may be negative in that specific time and place but as you move forward, those same failures that were negative 
become positive because now you can lean back on those and use them uh, to be better the next time. Tony, your last game in the big leagues was uh, for Philly, if I remember right, right? In 2014, the same year, sadly, that your father passed away. uh, You go to Washington, try to hook up in, in 2015. But when did you know in your heart that it was probably time to step away from the game and, and how much did your father's passing impact that decision? Uh, I mean, it impacted it tremendously. I think for me, I probably knew after that 14 season, um, but I didn't want to use my dad's passing as a, as a crutch not to, to try it again. And, um, you know, that 14 year was tough. I, I think under normal circumstances, that could have been a, a, a big year for me. It could have been like a breakout type season. I had a lot of things um, lined up for me that year. I was, I was getting to play with some really, really good veterans. I was a veteran at that time, and um, I was going to be given an opportunity. And I took the opportunity early, and I, I – Took, the, took it by the reins and really took off. But um, as my dad got sicker, it was just too hard for me, at least, to be able to separate the two, to be able to compartmentalize. It was uh, for, for a person like myself who talked to my dad, I literally talked to my dad almost every day. Didn't necessarily have to be about baseball, but to not have that relationship the, the honest, to be honest, it, it really affected me in that 14 season. So I knew after he passed in 14 that um, it was probably, that was probably the time, but I didn't want to use, as I said, I didn't want to use that as a crutch not to, to give it another attempt. Well, you look at that uh, last appearance in the big leagues, and yes, as Mike touched on, you tried with the Washington Nationals, but then this is called Major League Beginnings. And you had another beginning and you had to try to search for what was next for you. And you've been very successful in the radio booth, the TV, and and also having your own radio station uh, show that you get to have. How has that transition been? And and, uh, what's next for Tony Gwynn Jr.? Well, listen, I think just like my baseball career, I've been fortunate to be around people that um, are willing to help and willing to lend a hand when I have questions. Um, I had been planning for the second, quote unquote, second act of, of, of my career, uh, probably three, four years before that. Um, I knew what type of player I was. I, I knew I was gonna be a fourth outfielder, a bat off the bench, and I took it very seriously. But I also knew that, um, the longevity of that type of career isn't long, isn't necessarily that long. So uh, it was one of those things where I prepared for it. When the time came, I was ready. And um, listen, I get to talk about baseball. I mean, that's, it's, it's crazy that I call that a job, but it is, it's a job for me. I enjoy it. It's not work for me. And uh, as I said, when just like in my baseball career, being able to lean on, on folks like yourself, Mark, folks like like you, Mike, uh, has has really helped me excel. And, 
and probably accelerate the process a little bit. Uh, not everybody's fortunate to have people who are willing around them that are willing to reach their hand down to help out. And uh, certainly I, I owe you guys a lot of gratitude for that because both of you have been very, very helpful um, in, in helping me get to this point. Well, I got to tell you, buddy, you're far too kind. You're far too kind. You've done all of this by yourself. And uh, we're just uh, thrilled that things are working out for you now and love the fact that you're able to spend a few moments with us, especially uh, as the world, I think, could use a distraction, a great story, and a bunch of them from you, Tony. So, So thanks so much for the time. And I'm glad the family's healthy and safe. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you. Thanks, Tony. Folks, remember, you can catch Tony broadcasting the Padre games on radio and also television or on his regular weekday radio show on San Diego's 97.3 The Fan and On Demand as well. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.